Welcome to another episode of the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to the experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and others to break down the evidence behind the whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps we can take in the effort to shift towards a healthier lifestyle. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Hannah Kellyova to talk about her research in the field of plant-based nutrition, including intermittent fasting and chrononutrition as it relates to meal timing and frequency. Dr. Hannah Kellyova is Director of Clinical Research for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. She has conducted several clinical trials using a plant-based diet in the treatment of obesity, diabetes, and metabolic diseases. Her research showed that a plant-based diet leads to a greater weight loss and improvement in metabolism, as well as addressing multiple mechanisms behind diabetes. Her research proved that eating a large breakfast and lunch is more beneficial than eating six smaller meals a day for patients with type 2 diabetes. Her research on meal frequency and timing showed that eating less frequently, no snacking, consuming breakfast, and eating the largest meal in the morning may be effective methods for preventing long-term weight gain. As a member of the American Diabetes Association and as a board member of the Diabetes and Nutrition Study Group, Dr. Kaliova is directly involved in the processes of updating the nutritional recommendations for patients with diabetes. Dr. Hannah Kaliova, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. You're such a prolific researcher and a voice with international reach for plant-based diets for all the reasons noted in the brief biography shared at the beginning of this episode. And while the Czech Republic, I understand, is called home, and we even first met there at the International Symposium on Diabetes and Nutrition in Prague, which you were involved in organizing, you also have Canadian connections as you've collaborated on research projects with the Toronto 3D Knowledge Synthesis and Clinical Trials Unit with Dr. John Piper. And you were also recently a keynote speaker for the Canadian Plant-Based Nutrition Conference. Before we delve into your research, how did your interest in plant-based practices begin? Can you share with us your own plant-based story? Specifically, what led you to becoming plant-based? Yeah, that's a great question. I became interested in plant-based nutrition when I was 14 years old. At that time, not much was known about plant-based nutrition, and there were not as many products as there are nowadays. So it was fairly challenging. I remember that when I was 14, I've, I finally decided to go vegan. I was like, I want to preserve my health to the best of my abilities, and this is the way to go. And now my family, my parents were just on strike. (laughs) They were like, no, you cannot go vegan. You would harm yourself. (laughs) You know, your your health would be compromised and all that stuff. And I'm like, I was hard headed. I was like, well, this is what I'm doing. (laughs) So then my my mom said, well, okay, do your vegan diet, but you have to cook for yourself. And she thought, you know, this is going to last like two weeks. (laughs) Uh, But I said, fine. (laughs) And uh, the challenge was on. (laughs) So 
the experiments were kind of painful. <laughs> I remember the first time I bought millet and I, you know, there were no cookbooks uh, with plant-based with plant-based recipes. So there were only simple instructions on on the package basically cook as rice i didn't know what to do with millet so the first time i cooked millet it doesn't it didn't have any taste <laughs> and my whole family was laughing about me and they were like oh this is your vegan diet and they were like millet why would why would you even eat it like you know usually it's considered bird feed So why why would you eat it? A cat wouldn't eat it. A dog wouldn't eat it. And you want to eat it? <laughs> and I'm pleased to say that after many years of practicing, millet dishes are now my, my signature dishes. So if you come and visit, I'll I'll prepare some something out of millet for you. <laughs> But you know the beginnings were rough. Uh, this is how my plant based nutrition uh, journey started. And then when I went to medical school, my heart really went out to people with diabetes uh, because I saw that they were being recommended a low carbohydrate diet that was rich in cheese and meat, which was actually making their diabetes worse and also putting them at a higher risk of developing diabetic complications. And so I decided in medical school that I was going to do some research on plant-based nutrition for people with diabetes. So starting off when you were 14 and then trying to change the perspectives of your family, and I will take you up on that offer for your millet dish or at least your recipes one day, that's led you to be the director of clinical research for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Can you tell us a bit about this role and your aims within it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so after I finished medical school and I already had my first proposal how to do a study for people with diabetes, uh, I started working in a big hospital in Prague and I found a way how to do the study. Uh, we applied for funding at the Ministry of Health of the Czech Republic. We got the funding, we did the whole study, and then we did a few more studies for people with diabetes. And then I went to Loma Linda University in California uh, to do my postdoctoral fellowship, uh, where I analyzed the data from more than 50,000 people from the Adventist Health Study 2 on meal timing and frequency. Uh, you know, is it better to, to snack during the day or is it better to eat larger meals uh, during the day? Uh, for, for weight management and also for the risk of diabetes. So that was the topic for my postdoctoral fellowship. And then I joined the PCRM team. Uh, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine is a nonprofit organization that provides nutrition education and research. I'm the director of clinical research and we're conducting studies on the role of nutrition in different conditions, including diabetes, uh, but also recently we concluded a study for postmenopausal women with hot flashes. And we found out that a plant-based diet can actually help with this issue as well. 
Currently, we're running a study for women with endometriosis, which is a painful condition. There is no causal treatment, and these women oftentimes undergo repeated surgeries. It just causes a lot of pain and suffering, and we're hoping that we're able, we'll be able to improve their lives with, a, with plant-based nutrition. So it sounds like you're looking at a lot of different outcomes or conditions that aren't typically mm. looked at, or at least don't seem to always be in the forefront when at least I look into plant-based research on, say, PubMed or whatnot. It's not the first thing that comes up. It's normally more cardiovascular health, which is still important. But it's interesting to see that there's these other things that we have data to be able to analyze. And you mentioned the Adventist Health Study and the Adventist Health Study too. Now, this is one of those large cohorts, but can you tell us a little bit more about it? Because it does show up in research, but what exactly is it and how is the data analyzed from it? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a huge study uh, and the Seventh-day Adventists are a a health conscious group in North America uh, with a fairly, with, with a healthy lifestyle. They're a Protestant church. They uh, also believe in the importance of a healthy lifestyle. So pretty much all of them are non-smokers. They don't drink alcohol. The meat consumption is super low in this population. About half of them is vegetarian and, uh, you know, a large percentage is vegan, and so it's a, it's a great population to study the effects of meat eating and different dietary patterns and different, different dietary habits. So that's why in the Adventist Health Study, the, the data suggests that there is a linear relationship between animal product consumption and the risk of developing type 2 diabetes, for example. Uh, the lowest risk uh, of developing type 2 diabetes being in vegans who are the leanest out of all the groups. Uh, So, you know, it's a a wonderful study that contributes significantly to to science. uh, And I'm grateful for this opportunity to also analyze some some data on meal timing and frequency. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that some of your first work at Loma Linda University on this cohort was looking at meal timing, early time restricted eating, and how that affects metabolism and body weight. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah. Uh, So actually, this journey started uh, in in the hospital in Prague. After we completed the first study with a plant-based diet for people with type 2 diabetes, Uh, we decided to challenge the paradigm of eating many small meals during the day. Uh, You know, it's a common recommendation uh, for people with type 2 diabetes to just eat six small meals meals during the day. It's breakfast, lunch, and dinner, snacks in between, and sometimes even second dinner. Uh, You know, and the idea being... Uh, just divide up your caloric intake into small portions throughout the day so that you're never hungry, so that your blood sugar stays stable. And this is supposed to help with weight management. Uh, but what we found out in the literature suggested the opposite. So we decided to compare uh, this pattern of eating six meals a day 
with eating only two meals a day, breakfast and lunch, big breakfast and a big lunch. So the diet composition was the same. The caloric intake was the same. And it was a crossover study, which means that people with diabetes signed up for the study. They were reluctant first. They were like, I don't know if I can do two meals a day. That sounds like I'll be starving in the evenings, <laughs> but they were willing to give it a try. Uh, so they either started with two meals a day or six meals a day for 12 weeks, and then they switched to the opposite intervention. So each participant experienced both. And what we found out was pretty astounding. Uh, so with the same diet composition and the same calories, what would you expect would, would happen to body weight? Well, in my mind, at least from what I've read, read in the past before reading your papers, I would always think, oh, the smaller meals spread out throughout the day, you'd have more satiation throughout the day. So potentially that could lead to consuming less. But if the calories are kept the same, I'm not quite sure. And I know mm. that you've done the research to try to address this. So what did you find? Yeah, what we found out is that people lost more weight on two meals a day. Also, the liver fat content was reduced more on two meals a day. The insulin sensitivity increased more on two meals a day. And what was also interesting is that uh, the the depressive symptoms were reduced more on two meals a day, and also the feelings of hunger. And that was the that was the main hesitation, uh, you know, with signing up for the study. Uh, if I'm hungry I, and I cannot do it, I will just drop out. And guess what? After a few days, uh, the body just completely adjusted to the new regimen. And at the end of the study, most people just loved it. And they were like, I'm staying on two meals a day. This, this is just working well for me. That's how my journey with intermittent fasting started. Uh, with this study showing that intermittent fasting uh, actually incorporated on a daily basis in the form of eating two meals a day and having an 18 hour long night fast really works for the management of diabetes. And I decided to study the topic in more detail in Loma Linda. And we analyzed the data from the Adventist Health Study. And we found out that there was a linear relationship between uh, the number of meals consumed and the risk of gaining weight. So we put three meals a day as a reference group. And those who were eating more than three meals a day were gaining weight over the course of seven years of the follow-up compared with eating uh, only three meals a day. Uh, and what was striking is that there was a fairly large group of people who were eating two meals a day, you know, which is like exactly what we tried for the population with diabetes. And these people were doing much better than those eating three meals a day. They were leaner and they had a lower risk of um, gaining weight. You know, the number of meals was important. The length of night fast was also important. Uh, 18 hours a day, at least, of night fast was shown uh, the, like an ideal length of night fast, which 
underscores, again, having two meals a day about five to six hours apart. And uh, we also found out that breakfast is one of the most important meals of the day, of the day that jumpstarts the metabolism. And people who are consuming breakfast had a lower risk of uh, gaining weight uh, compared to those who were skipping breakfast. And having breakfast as the largest meal of the day is, you know, is the best. So that actually confirms the ancient proverb, eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. <laughs> you speak about the larger meals at breakfast, the prince-like meal at lunch. What are, do we know about the composition of these meals? Are there certain compositions that we that have shown the best effects or is it more what works best for the individual? Yeah, so having a large breakfast uh, worked across the cohort, you know, regardless of the composition of the diet. But we also know that diet composition is an independent factor. Uh, so which breakfasts work best? Uh, those that have a lot of fiber, a lot of antioxidants, so it can be either oatmeal and fruit, or it can be a savory breakfast, let's say tofu scrambled with veggies. It can be lentil soup, you know, some, some people like just these savory breakfasts, or it can be like a bean burrito. Some people uh, like meals that could be also eaten for lunch or dinner. It could be leftovers from, from your previous day. Uh, so uh, as long as the meal is packed with fiber and antioxidants and all the major macronutrients, then th that's the best breakfast how to jumpstart your day. And what do you think is the potential mechanism as to why two meals a day versus the six meals a day? Because it seems at least to me, opposite as to what I would originally think, even though the science is showing us this. So what could potentially be leading to this? Could it be like, I know we have the thermic effect of food that people often talk about or changes in gut microbiome, but is there something that could be explaining this finding? Yeah, the thermic effect of food is one of the explanations um, because if you eat a large meal compared with the same meal broken up into many small meals a day, after the one big meal, you will burn more calories. The thermic effect of food will be larger. So that's probably one of the mechanisms why uh, you know the, the bigger meals work better for weight management compared with smaller meals. And along this topic, you recently published a paper, I believe just in the past month in the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which presented findings showing that a low-fat vegan diet may improve measures of diet quality and metabolic health. How did you come up with this research trial? And can you tell us more about how this research was conducted? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, when when we talk about the vegan diet, you know, many times uh, people just say, well, but a vegan diet can be a junk food vegan diet. It doesn't mean it's necessarily healthy. And so that's why we decided to do research on this. And we were assessing the diet quality of people 
to whom we recommended to follow a low-fat vegan diet. A vegan diet means no animal products. A low-fat diet means we were recommending to minimize the use of oils and to the upper limit for the fat intake was 30 grams per day. And these two simple rules basically allow people to eat a lot of junk food if they wanted to, right? They could eat a lot of sugar. They could drink sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, they could eat a lot of desserts. So they could eat a lot of refined grains. So we were curious, uh, like if you give people these simple instructions, will they go crazy on the junk food <laughs> or what will happen? <laughs> So we measured the dietary quality using the alternate uh, healthy dietary index. And this measure was developed at Harvard University to measure the dietary quality. And we found out that on a, on a low-fat vegan diet, the diet quality really increased. Uh, so that means that the diet quality really improved. And uh, people were losing weight. These were overweight individuals. And the, the study was 16 weeks long, four months. And people were nicely losing weight. They lost about 14 pounds in 16 weeks. So that's almost a pound a week. And the weight loss was completely sustainable. People felt great. They felt like they can do this for life. Uh, you know, they were eating until they were satiated. There, there, were no, there was no caloric restriction. So people loved it. People were like, this is so simple. Uh, you know, many of them at that point have already been on so many diets, you know, uh, during their lifetime. And they were like, this is one of the best diets ever. <laughs> I can eat anything I want as long as I stick to these guidelines. And the fruit and vegetable consumption went up. Uh, the whole grain consumption went up. Uh, and remarkably, uh, the legume consumption went up. Legumes are one of the foods, um, you know, where the, the U.S. population uh, just consumes so, so little. And we could do so, so much better. And so when we were trying to tease out which of the foods that people were not eating or were eating more, more of, which one of them was most, mostly associated with the weight loss that people were experiencing? Which one was the deal breaker? And I was like, I bet it'll be green leafy vegetables. <laughs> and guess what? No, <laughs> I was wrong. It was not the green leafy vegetables. So we found out that it was two main factors. First of all, not eating any meat, not any poultry, not any fish. All the meat combined was one of the most important factors why, why people were losing weight. And the second biggest factor, drum roll, the beans. <laughs> Yay. People started eating more beans and this contributed significantly to their weight loss. Obviously, you know, all of the plant foods are beneficial. So, you know, if you're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and, and beans, like all of these are beneficial. 
but beans made the biggest difference together with not eating meat in our particular study for weight loss. Very interesting, especially because I feel like beans are often forgotten, but they're one of the things that are potentially easy to throw into different types of dishes because they are so versatile. And I believe you've also studied this low-fat vegan diet, and you've published also um, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And not only in this past publication did you show that it did it increase diet quality, but you've also shown that it had benefits for insulin sensitivity, metabolism, and lipid levels. How did you go about studying this? And were you expecting these results? And what did you find? Yeah, exactly. This is this is such a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Like, you know, when when people were entering the study, they were in their 50s and 60s. So these were overweight people who were like, my metabolism has just slowed down and I seem to be gaining weight from just breathing air. It's just in- incredible. And we were like, well, Let's look at what a diet can do for you. So we were measuring their metabolism in detail using indirect calorimetry. We were also using a DEXA scan to measure the body composition. Uh, We gave them a standard breakfast to test out their beta cell function and their insulin sensitivity. And we were also sending them to Yale University, to doctors Schulman and Peterson, who were measuring the fat content in the liver and in the muscle. And uh, the results after 16 weeks on a low-fat vegan diet were pretty astounding. Uh, So people lost about 14 pounds. So that's about one pound a week. Two-thirds of the weight loss were due to fat loss. People lost a lot of visceral fat, uh, and so their body composition improved, uh, and their insulin sensitivity improved, and the fat content in the liver decreased by 34%, which is pretty remarkable. There is no causal treatment for fatty liver disease. So uh, if you have fatty liver, you know, a a low-fat vegan diet is one of the best options out there for you. And I'd like to encourage you to give it a try. Uh, And in terms of the measurement of metabolism, uh, the the thermic effect of food, the post-meal metabolism, how you burn calories after a meal, increased by 14% in 16 weeks. So in a relatively short period of time, which means that potentially if you stay on the same diet, if you eat about the same amount of calories, you will be losing weight. Or it it also means you could potentially eat 14% calories more in order to maintain your weight. Uh, So it really speeded up the metabolism in, in people who thought, man, my metabolism has slowed down and I'm not able to do anything about it. That's pretty astounding, that 14%. So we're going to shift gears just slightly because you've looked at a lot of really interesting outcomes or different effects of a plant-based diet or associations of a plant-based diet. And over the last couple of years, the research world has shifted to give greater focus to COVID-19. And this included research in the field of nutritional sciences. 
And you yourself, you were on the cutting edge, I believe, because right in April of 2020, you started to be able to summarize the evidence that has been available on this topic. And you and Dr. Bernard had asked the question, can a plant-based diet help mitigate COVID-19 to try to find solutions to the COVID pandemic? And this resulted in a review paper that was recently published in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. What are some of the lessons that you came across from this research? And what can we learn from history, such as the 1918 H1N1 influenza? Yeah, the great lesson is that even infectious diseases can, to a certain degree, be affected by the diet and by the lifestyle we have. So one study in almost 600,000 healthcare professionals from six six countries, including the U.S., found um, that those who were on a plant-based diet Uh, had a 73% lower risk of developing severe COVID-19, you know, of ending up in a hospital due to COVID-19 compared with general population, which is a significant, uh, you know, cut in risk. And it inspired me to look into uh, the blue zones. And I looked at Okinawa as one of the blue zones. And I was like, okay, Uh, Let me find out the number of cases of COVID-19 and um, how many people died of COVID-19. Now, Okinawa is one of the blue zones, has more centenarians, that means people who live to at least 100 years old, um, more centenarians than the rest of Japan. Uh, And I mean, Japan is the leader in longevity in the world. (laughs) So it's like pretty impressive. Uh, But I was like, well, age is a risk risk factor for, you know, uh, adverse uh, COVID-19 outcomes. So I'm wondering how Okinawa will compare to, let's say, Tokyo. Uh, Both Okinawa and Tokyo uh, have roughly the same population. So I compared both of these regions and I found out that the mortality, the COVID-19 mortality in Okinawa was 16 times lower compared with Tokyo. And I was like, man, that's a significant difference. And I mean, there is many factors, obviously. Uh, When you live in a big city like Tokyo, you're dealing with air pollution and all the unhealthy lifestyle habits, sedentary lifestyle, and sometimes smoking and, you know, you name it. But diet is obviously one one of the most important factors as well. We know that Okinawa is known for the predominantly plant-based diet, where people eat a lot of green leafy vegetables, a lot of soy foods, about half of the calories are coming from sweet potatoes. The fat content in in the diet is super low. Yeah, here they are having one of the best COVID-19 outcomes in the world. That's so surprising. And speaking of the blue zones, I believe the seven-day Adventists in California also are considered a blue zone as well. So it's very interesting looking at these populations and seeing this information available in real time. Now, you talk about, okay, these individuals on 
in Okinawan, they have such a lower incidence rate of COVID-19. So why would a plant-based diet potentially be related to immune function? And what is the type of evidence that we have relating either a plant-based diet or components of a plant-based diet to our immunity or risk for viral infection? Uh, we know that uh, fruits and vegetables are a rich source of antioxidants. And we, we know, for example, that people in the past who were vaccinated uh, against pneumonia, for example, those who are consuming more fruits and vegetables, they also had a better protection after uh, the vaccination. Uh, they had higher titers of antibodies compared with those who are not eating as many fruits and vegetables. So it's not a luxury <laughs> to eat fruits and vegetables. It's actually pretty important for your immune system. And we can just extrapolate uh, based on this knowledge uh, that this might be true also for COVID-19. We know that, for example, after the COVID-19 vaccination, those people who are overweight or those who have high blood lipids, those who are smokers, they only produce a fraction of the antibodies compared with lean people who are healthy. Uh, so, you know, there are many factors that, that play a role. If you are on a healthy plant-based diet, uh, it also means that you're at a lower risk of developing all these cardiometabolic risk factors, including obesity and high blood pressure uh, and, and so on. Uh, so that's one of the protective factors. And the other mechanism is the direct uh, impact uh, of all these antioxidants on your immune system. And we know that, for, for example, vitamin C uh, is a potent antioxidant that helps improve the immune function. But there are so many in, uh, in a plant-based diet. It's, it's not only the antioxidants, the few that we know from literature, it's many more phytochemicals that help our immune system. For example, one study looked at uh, consuming garlic as a prevention of developing uh, viral infections. Uh, and they found out that a garlic supplement was super eff effective in preventing viral infections. Uh, and which compounds, you know, is it in garlic? Well, you know, there's allicin, but there's also many more phytochemicals. So this is just a, an example of how the symphony of all the phytochemicals that we're consuming on a vegan diet, you know, may be beneficial for our immune system. Sounds like there's potentially many different components interacting with each other, the food matrix as a whole that could potentially lead to benefits, not only for infection risk or reducing infection risk, but also for other chronic disease situations as well. You've done so much research in a variety of different areas. Are there any trials underway that you're conducting that you would like to briefly share? Or are there any questions in this field that you feel need greater consideration at this time? Yeah, we're conducting a study for women with endometriosis. And that's a potentially really important topic. 
these women have, have to go through so much pain and th- so much suffering. And so uh, can a plant-based diet help with this condition? Uh, what mechanisms would be responsible if, if it could? Is it about the weight management? Is it about the hormonal balance? Is it about the advanced glycation end products, the AGEs that age you, <laughs> uh, that, that may be lower on a vegan diet? These are the questions um, that we'd like to discover. Very interesting question, especially because I feel like this is an area that doesn't receive as much research attention as perhaps some of the more commonly discussed chronic diseases like heart disease or diabetes. Even though I believe endometriosis can affect women of any age, as it's a chronic inflammatory disease where the tissue similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside the uterus, causing a lot of pain and can even lead to infertility. To my understanding, the World Health Organization acknowledges that there is a need for more research and awareness raising around the world to ensure infective prevention, early diagnosis, and improved management of this disease. So it will be really interesting to hear more about your research in this area and the knowledge that may be gained in relation to endometriosis and nutrition. With all this research that you're conducting, where can people find out more about what you're working on and if they want to learn more about the research that you have conducted? Uh, You can go to our website at pcrm.org. And what's cool about our website is that you can also type in any condition you're wondering about, such as diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or any other conditions you're wondering about. We've done the work for you. We found all the research studies that might be beneficial for you. Uh, for that particular condition. We also have plenty of recipes. You can download our free 21-day vegan kickstart program. Uh, That's an app on your phone that'll give you recipes and cooking demos, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, So this is the easiest way. You can also sign up to receive all our updates. This is the best way how to keep connected. Such a useful resource as well. And lastly, what would your take-home message be for our listeners? Uh, My take-home message is don't be afraid. If I could make the change when I was 14, you can certainly do it nowadays where you have soy milk and almond milk and oats milk and so many kinds of products that I was only dreaming of or I didn't know about uh, when I was 14. So I'd like to encourage all of you to give it your best shot. You know, maybe you're at a point where... You've been wondering about vegan diets and you are doubting, can I do it? You absolutely can. Or maybe you've been vegan for 30 years, but there's still a part of you that's like, I really like the junk food and I'm sticking to it. Then for those of you, I'd like to encourage you, eat more of the whole foods. Like, you know, take take on the challenge. It's easier than it's you know, than it's ever been. So give it the best, the best shot and improve your health. Anna, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today. It's been such a pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been, it's been fun. And uh, I hope that the listeners will benefit from this interview. This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi, 
and Clint Stamatovich is our audio engineer. This podcast featured royalty-free music from freesound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Dr. Hannah Kaliova, for speaking with us and sharing her insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate health professionals and the public on the evidence behind plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. Until next time.